Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let Mom's Green Thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants, indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give Mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. So why do you want to learn a new language? I'll tell you why. Because donde esta el baño can be a very important question at times. You know, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. Fast track your language acquisition with immersive lessons designed to teach you to pick up languages in a natural way. I love the fact that I can go from my laptop to my phone to pretty much anywhere and learn the language of my choice. Not to mention I'm bringing my communication skills to new heights. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a limited time, Star Talk Radio listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash StarTalk. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash StarTalk today. Welcome to Star Talk, your place in the universe where science and pop culture collide. Star Talk begins right now. This is Star Talk, Cosmic Queries Edition. And today's subject is extremophiles and alien worlds. One of my favorite subjects. Chuck, what do you think about that topic? Uh, Kind of sounds like aliens gone wild. <laughs> Call right now. It's aliens gone wild. You've never seen aliens like this before. Extremophiles. I, I, I love me the sub little bit of this subject, and yeah. but we have a one of the world's experts on it. Yeah. On Star Talk today, Kenda Lynch. Kenda, welcome to Star Talk. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> excellent, excellent. You you have a PhD in this stuff and but let me just alert people that your expertise is is some kind of amalgam of whole fields that were previously distinct from one another because i think of geology and i think of biology and i think of modern astrophysics and you just took a big fat stapler and crammed them together <laughs> and then you and you do all three of these all at once how is that even possible um, it's called astrobiology. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you got to know your geology too, um, right? You do have to know your, yeah, I mean, so yeah, it's kind of this interesting thing where you just got to learn to wear a lot of hats and, um, and you don't necessarily, you, you should have, I mean, ultimately you have expertise in one thing a little bit more than the other, but you have to know enough about the others to kind of pull those pieces in because ultimately they all are really interconnected. And you also have to know when you don't know something and pulling the right people to work with you, but you have to be able to speak their language. So having that understanding of geology, so I can talk to a hard rock geologist about, you know, how I think my bugs are eating their rock, you know, is important. And being able to have the same, you know, same conversation about it is really important. Yeah, let me tell you something. This is why I love being on this show. It's the only time you will ever hear somebody say, and I have to talk to them about how their bugs are eating my rocks. <laughs> it's, it's, a, I did not see that sentence coming. I did not either. But Kenda, you work on Earth. Mm -hmm. So why, what does it have anything to do with aliens on other worlds? Well, I mean, the reality is, is when we're trying to understand life in the universe right now, we only have one data point, and that's Earth. So, um, you know, we have to kind of work on Earth and try to understand life here. And and really, when we think about it, it's a big question. How did life even come to be on Earth? How did life, Earth come to be this big cradle where there's lots of life just kind of crawling all over it and in it and everywhere? And Let, let, me, let me help you with that, Kenda. Uh, <laughs> Bugs started eating rocks. <laughs> <laughs> Chuck, Chuck is not going to shake that sentence for the, for the next five years. He's gonna, <laughs> mm, yum, yum, yum. Tasty rocks. <laughs> but, when we, but when we really try to understand looking for life in the universe, you know, a, a logical first question, and, and especially since we've tried and 
and hadn't been too successful in the past looking for life on other planets was, well, how do we, how well do we understand life here on earth? Do we understand the extent of where life can live on earth? Do we understand how life arose on earth and kind of what did early life look like on earth and, and, you know, where can we go to look for it and what kind of environments did it live live in? And those are a lot of the questions. Okay. I'm, I'm an old man here. When I learned about this, it was, we need the 72 degree tide pool for earth, for life to thrive on yeah. earth. Yeah. Yeah, that's, no. that's how old I am. The, that's how old I am. <laughs> One of the things that we have learned Life is not comfortable unless it's room temperature. Uh, yeah, no. <laughs> and it needs just the right amount of sugars and it needs and it needs the special kind of media. No. What we have learned every is, once in a while, every once in a while, life is just like, who touched that thermostat? <laughs> That's exactly. Right. Now, which one of y'all touched that thermostat <laughs> on its Barco lounger? It's, it gets that, that would that would be that would be us as a life. We we're the ones that kind of need to. We need we are the ones that glamp, right? But but microbial life, man. Every time we think we got those bugs figured out, they do something crazy, and we're like, wait, what do you mean you can live on a nuclear reactor? Wait. What do you mean you can live two kilometers down in a, in a subsurface in the subsurface, and we find you when we're mining for gold? What do you mean right, you can okay. live what, yeah, yeah. in like like super hot water that's also salty and acidic? What do you mean? So okay, wait a minute. Three sentences ago, you used the word glamp. <laughs> could you please, for anyone over fifty, could you just tell people what that word means? That's please? like it's like camping, but glamour camping, like bringing your house with you camping. So you you maybe have like. <laughs> You're not really camping. You're in the wild, but not really, because maybe you like tow a big old like, you still get house trailer if, with you, and that's your camper. You know, if you can still watch HBO in your trailer, you're not camping. Yeah, basically, the- basically, you know, if you've got yeah, if you've got a hot tub, and you know, <laughs> and, and you've got your and you've got and you've got your your um your Keurig or your Tosimo or your what's the other right. one. You got that making your coffee, you're not camping. (laughs) That's why I camp at the Ritz-Carlton. There you go. (laughs) Okay, so you're a staff scientist at the the storied Lunar and Planetary Science Institute. Mm -hmm. Um, Is that right? Is that, no, uh, just Lunar and Planetary Institute. Is that what they call it? Correct, yes. Right, right. And um, that's based in Houston, Mm -hmm. Houston, Texas. Mm -hmm. And we're especially interested in you today because um, you're featured in episode two of Netflix's docu-series, what's it called? Alien Worlds. Yes, yes. So um, uh, pick up the action for us. Where do, where, where do we find you? Um, you find me, uh, as far as in the episode, yeah, right when we open up right in the beginning, you see this alien landscape that kind of looks, in my opinion, it looks like Mars. But we're actually in the uh, Dalal hydrothermal system, which is in the Danakil Depression in Ethiopia. And the Danakil Depression... So hydrothermal, this would be heat emerging from Earth's crust. Correct manifesting uh, on the surface somehow. Yeah, hydrothermal right? meaning that it's um it's heat coming from the um from this the the earth's subsurface and in this case a hydrothermal system usually meets heat generated waters like geo generated um water manifesting up in the surface. So there's water flowing in the subsurface passing over usually like a what we call a magma pocket. There's a big pocket of lava and there's water flowing over it getting superheated and then pushing up to the Earth's surface and boiling out and spewing out all sorts of hot gases and everything like that. And that's called a hydrothermal So at those, at those high temperatures, does it absorb a lot of minerals from the rocks it that it passes does. through? It does. It absorbs a lot of minerals. So there's a lot of um, what we call um, anions and cations. There's a lot of dissolved constituents, um, chemical constituents. And especially in the Dalal system, it also goes through su- a subsurface salt deposit. So not only is it getting minerals from like the, 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 from just like the the ground, the subsurface rock, like over the magma pocket, pocket, but it's also picking up all these minerals and dissolving all these salt minerals. And so Dalal um, is amazing because it is, it's hydrothermal, really hot and super salty, hypersaline. And it's also acidic because there's also all this iron and sulfur that make it super acidic. So, and that's where you want to find life. Yeah, and it, 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 it's what we call a poly extreme environment, and it's so amazing. And it, it's a it's a crazy challenge for life, and yet, um, you know, there's multiple teams of us working there that are finding evidence for life in these this wow. environment. And okay, so so the so the Dead Sea, mm-hmm. which is a highly salinic body of water. Mm-hmm could only have been named that by people who did not have access to a microscope. Yeah, because there's a <laughs> lot of life in the Dead Sea. <laughs> Salt. I, Just I no kinda, fishes, no vertebrate fishes. kind of get the feeling that the Dead Sea was named because somebody drank it. 
And then everybody <laughs> else was like, you see what happened? <laughs> you do, everybody, don't, you see what just happened? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> water, water, all around and not a drop to drink. Right. There you yeah, go. There you go. <laughs> um, so, so tell me about that. I, I read something about there's an algae pool nearby or in some other parts of your work. What's going on there? Uh, in in Dalal or in um, other other sites that I work at, I'm. Oh, well, just I I just I just have notes that I'm piecing together here. So, just a, a pools of algae in a toxic liquid. Well, What's going so it's on there? Pools of algae. So we have these bubbling pools, right? And they're literally like you literally have elemental sulfur precipitating out of these waters, and you can see like sulfur. So it stinks. Oh, it st it stinks, and it's like you think the Dead Sea is deadly? Oh no, Dalal is deadly. You'll see when we're walking through there, you literally see if you get too close on the ground, there's so much um, hydrogen sulfide gas and carbon dioxide gas. And if you get Ooh, too close. Wait, you got to tell Chuck. Tell Chuck what hydrogen sulfide gas smells like. Um, rotten, rotting eggs. All right, listen. No, no, you can. He's a comedian. You can do I better knew, than that. I knew what it was. And I'm sitting here. I'm okay, sitting here like. Holding, him, you know, holding himself in. I'm trying my best. You, know? I, you have no idea the amount of restraint I just exercised. I have 15 fart jokes right now that are bubbling up in me. I shouldn't say They're bubbling up. up. That's the wrong way to talk about a fart joke. <laughs> But so I, Chuck has the, the fart just backed up backed in that up. whole time you're talking about <laughs> this, Kenda. I was ready to explode with fart <laughs> This is all I'm saying. <laughs> okay, so hydrogen sulfide, H2SO4, is that uh, H2, correct? H2S, actually. Oh, just H2S. H2S. Oh, H2SO4 is, is sulfuric yeah, this, acid. Yeah, and that's okay. what's in the water, is <laughs> the H2S. The sulfuric acid is actually, there's H2S, low um, molarity. So, I mean, well, I don't know. I haven't touched the water, but in, in other acidic environments, usually the H2S is kind of low molarity because I've also worked in the Rio Tinto um, acid river system. And so the H2S is pretty low. Like it's not going to like immediately burn your skin off. You know, you'll, you'll get a nice peel though from it. If you okay. So that's the place. If you're going to eat beans, no one will blame you yeah, for anything because you got, oh, yeah. you got to total, the whole landscape to blame it yeah, on. Yeah, right. okay. gonna I notice. would do very well there. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> I, I would do very well. There. <laughs> yeah, nobody's nobody's gonna miss thing. <laughs> Chuck, for one night only, an evening of fart jokes. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. So, Kenda, uh, what what where did you grow up? Um, I grew up in. I'm a Midwestern kid. I grew up in a town called Rockford, Illinois, which is just west of Chicago, about ninety about ninety miles. I went into Chicago a lot, of, a lot for you know going to see shows and. Well, just to be clear, if you were just ninety miles west of New York City, mm -hmm. you were across New Jersey into Pennsylvania. I so <laughs> to, to to index your location to be ninety miles in any direction from Chicago, um, does that mean there's no other big city you can tell us what you're near? Um. No, not not where I am because I'm, I'm west. I if say. I was east, I could say you know Detroit's not far Detroit. away. Detroit, you know, Detroit. If I was east all right, of Chicago, yeah, 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 yeah. But I'm west, so no, it's kind of okay. kind of open plains and cornfields and stuff. Yeah, uh, north right. of me though is okay. Green Bay. If I had straight north, you'd you'd be in Green Bay in a few hours. And we've all heard of Green Bay. Yeah, yeah. So, well, so I'm a Bears did, fan, so you know, let's not go there. Oh, <laughs> the Bears. Mm -hmm. yeah. So how did you? Uh, so, uh, how do you land on extremophiles as a career goal? Oh, well, you know, um, oh, this is interesting because I had a different hat on when I started my career. I actually started um, learning how to try to grow food and keep astronauts alive on other planets. I started oh, out as That's a, cool, too. Started, Both of these are cool. <laughs> I started yeah. out as a systems engineer um, working on space station and trying to keep people alive. But in my education, I, dual, I, I was, I'm nuts, and I um, did a dual... Degree. I literally have two bachelor's degree, one in engineering, one in biology. But generally, if you're nuts, you don't have to tell that to other people because it's just completely clear. It, it is true. Okay. Yeah. By the way, all you have to do is say, I got two bachelor degrees at the same time. And people will look That's at nuts. you and okay. go, you must be nuts. <laughs> okay. And, and, okay. and so part of, yeah, so, yeah, well, yeah. Um, and I like pain, apparently. So, you know, there's that. Um Part of it, part of my training was to also learn about microbes because when growing, trying to grow plants and develop earth microcosms, you know, microcosms, you have to understand, you know, not only how humans live, but how everything else that's going to interact lives. So I took classes in, you know, um, aquatic ecology. I took classes in lake ecology. I took classes in plant biology. 
you know, and I took classes in microbiology. And so... Well, wait, so so at the end of the day, you realized you took two different majors worth of courses? Mm -hmm. Is that what happened there? So what are the two majors? What were the two? Uh, the first one was basically systems engineering. So it was all of, I took a full course of engineering classes, and then I took a full course of general biology classes. And um, uh. my engineering degree lets me specialize, so I was able to use a couple of my upper-level biology classes for my specialization in engineering. So Wait, wait, wait. So your PhD, what was the title of your PhD thesis? A Geobiological Investigation of the Hypersaline Sediments of Pilot Valley, Utah, a Terrestrial Analog to Ancient Lake Basins on Mars. Wow. Wow. Okay. That's why I had to read it. Wow. I couldn't remember. <laughs> I, I got to tell you right now, I'm sorry he asked. <laughs> I, I, I retract the question. Yeah. <laughs> the funny thing is my PhD was still an engineering degree. I, I unintentionally got three engineering degrees along the way. <laughs> I'm liking it. Oh, the, the master's along yeah, the way? Yeah, aerospace engineering yeah. for my master's. Okay, so, so you, you were think, totally loaded. What do you loaded. think about... Since you're a microbiologist mm-hmm. and you were talking about growing food as one of your mm-hmm. uh, tasks when you were working on space stations, what do you think about Matt Damon growing poop potatoes on Mars? <laughs> poop potatoes on Mars. We need uh, we need the final the yeah. final word there. <laughs> he would have um, had some problems with his thyroid because of all the perchlorate in the in the um, in the regolith. So yeah. There, wow. There so issues. basically, okay. Wait, just to be clear, him. wait, wait. I wait, I got to unpack that. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. So. On Earth, we have soil, mm-hmm. which is rich in microbes yes. that participate in the ecosystem. Yep. On the moon and on Mars, there is no soil. Yep, no, there's not. Whatever, the dust is there is like is ground up rock, basically. Right. Yes. And so, and you call it regolith. Ooh. We call it regolith because it has not been processed by microbes that we know of. On the, like, for definitely not on the moon and on Mars, not that we know of. And and we, we're not sure what the origin is of the organic matter that we have found so far on Mars. So re, um, we call it regolith because it's not soil like we know it on Earth that has been processed over years by by microbes and um, and other um, element, other life elements. And, and there's not a significant amount of organic matter making it kind of a... Uh, so he would have had a, a thyroid problem. Mm-hmm. So when they picked him up to save him, he basically would have had a goiter, uh, probably, or some other crazy issues. He, his 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 uh, metabolic system would have been having some weird issues because perchlorate, you know, actually kind of competes with iodine to bind on your thyroid. And we know that Mars has an abundance of perchlorate in the regolith, and oh, that's actually gotcha. something that um, you know I'm working on with other scientists. I'm. It's kind of funny in my astrobiology life. I'm starting to kind of go back to my to my human roots. spaceflight roots um, and bringing yeah, my astrobiology yeah. knowledge and my human spaceflight knowledge together as we're getting ready to go back to the moon. Well, in, in the next segment, we're going to pick up questions from our fan base, uh, our Patreon fan base. Uh, Chuck has all the questions. I haven't seen them. And uh, we're going to find out what the public has to ask you. And they're very, we, we got a good, we, we got good people out all there right. who listen to this show. They're scientifically literate. And they want to get more scientific about it. And that's what this is all about when Star Talk returns. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you, like FedEx who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture-proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more... FedEx ground is faster to more locations than UPS ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, business tripper, or long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. 
And that's good because there are a lot of me's. Choice Hotels has over 7,400 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels. Get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. Cambria Hotels feature locally inspired hotel bars with specialty cocktails and downtown locations in the center of it all. Hey, that's me. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces to get the most of your business travel and on-site restaurants. That's me, too. And at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles, great pools for the entire family, and spacious rooms. Hey, that's me, too. I guess I'm just going to have to stay at all of them. Choice Hotels has a stay for any of you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travel comes true. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. Hey, I'm Roy Hill Percival, and I support Star Talk on Patreon. Bringing the universe down to Earth, this is Star Talk with Neil deGrasse Tyson. We're back, Star Talk, Cosmic Queries. We're talking about extremophiles and alien worlds with one of the world's experts on that and apparently a whole lot of other stuff, too. <laughs> We've got K Kenda Lynch who is a scientist at the Lunar and Planetary Institute in, in Houston and who specializes in bugs on Earth that do the backstroke in high temperature, high acid, high everything else that would kill us post-haste. And we're loving it. Uh, so, so uh, Kenda, also, uh, where, would, where might we find you on social media? Um, I am on Twitter and I am on Facebook. I have an Instagram, but I need to use it more. But I'm MarsGirl42 on Twitter, for sure. Whoa. Thank you. Cool. Hey, cool. It's a good one. And and you can also find me on the LPI website as well. Okay. The Lunar Planetary mm -hmm. Institute. Okay. Very cool. So, Chuck, this is a Cosmic Query. So, uh, we, we put out the call. And so, what did you get? Well, we got, uh, we got a bunch of people who actually... Um, Believe it or not, are super interested in this subject. <laughs> no, I believe it. I believe it. It's like weirdly interesting. You know? uh, it really yeah, is. Okay. It really is. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, let's start off with our with our favorite. Uh, this is Violetta uh, and her mom. Uh, it says, "Hello." Ain't that child grown up by now? Is she, <laughs> is she in college by now, Violetta? She, she she used to write it when she was like eleven oh and twelve, and well, no, when she was eleven and eleven and a half. Yep. And twelve and, and twelve and a half. Okay. Well. Here we go. This is, uh, hi, Neil. Hi, Chuck. Hi, Kenda. Violetta here, the 13-and-a-half-year-old. <laughs> He's up to 13-and-a-half. He's a, a full-up teenager. All okay. Right. So you said it, Neil. She, she did 11 and then 12, 12-and-a-half. 12 now she's 13-and-a-half. And-a-half. All right. Okay. Uh, she says, I'm writing in from Washington, D.C., and my question is, what is the most surprising, fascinating life form or trait about a life form here on Earth that you have discovered or learned about in your career so far? How did this Ooh. impact the way you think about what life might look like elsewhere in the universe? Thanks, guys. And I just want to say to Dr. Lynch that the world needs more scientists that look like you. Whoa! By that, by that she means fabulous. Um, <laughs> Looking fabulous. <laughs> fabulous. And she says, thank you so much for doing and being an inspiration. Wow, thank Ooh, you nice. so much, Violetta. So, oh my gosh, there's so many, there's so many crazy- Dude, what's the weirdest bug out there? You, it's got, you, got, you probably have posters that rank the <laughs> weirdest to, don't tell me that you don't know what, you, what your well, answer is I'll here. give you my number one favorite because I just think it's so crazy. The thought of it is just so crazy. My, my favorite bug is, um, is the um, is the one that can live on nuclear reactors? <laughs> it's literally. This and does it have a name? Yes, and I'm trying to remember the name. Like, but it's not. It's not the tardigrade. It's not the tardigrade. It's not the tardigrade because tardigrade is not. It's a that tardigrade is a micro is a small organism, but it's a multicellular organism. It's um um oh my gosh, my brain is it's uh, but it's 
Okay, but tell us more about it. So it can live like inside a nuclear it can live reactor. On, they found it living on nuclear reactions. It could take these high doses of of radiation, and it's got this cool shape. It's actually kind of like a cube almost shape. And that's what okay. I love in Japan, that. those things turn into Godzilla. <laughs> I was going to say. Okay? That's how. Yeah. That's how you you're, got all yeah, of those Japanese <laughs> monsters. You're talking about a Marvel origin story right now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so somebody ate, ate some. Um, <laughs> It's, I, oh, yeah, I, I, the name will come to me, and I'll spit it out at some point later. Okay. <laughs> I know I will. All right, so so you like the radiation resistance I of just, that. I just think it's amazing that, again, it's this whole thing about every time we think we got bugs figured out, like, okay, here's their radiation limit. Here's their life water limit. Here's their cold limit. Here's their hot limit. And then bugs are like, yeah, no, and they blow us right away. And they're like, no, nah, we figured we got out this. a way. Yeah, we, we got, got this. this. We got this. All right, so so is this a, this a single-celled yes, organism? Yes, this is a single-celled organism, yes. Got it, um, okay. Most of the, right. most of Whereas the tardigrade is a whole macroscopic object with legs and... Right, and it's a multicellular organism, but it's still small, and it's still something that has amazing, amazing resilience and, and can survive incredible, incredible environments. So I'd be excited if we could find something like the tardigrade like on another planet, because it definitely has developed strategies to live... In crazy environments, it kind of basically desiccates itself and like goes dormant and goes into like a, it's like, you know, it's, they call it a water bear. So it goes into hibernation, this really crazy, like dehydrated hibernation, and it can survive all sorts of insane environments, including being exposed to space. Oh, man, there's a whole episode of Star Trek Discovery devoted to a space tardigrade <laughs> that they find that helps them navigate the mycelium network. And the mycelium, cosmic mycelium network is this thing that allows you to move faster than light because you enter this network that kind of transports you almost instantaneously to different locations throughout the universe. I love it, I love it. They found a tardigrade in Who would have thought tardigrades were also spacefaring? Well, if they came from space initially, that's the big thing there. Cool. Let's get the next question. Chuck, what else you got? All righty, let's do it. Here we go. Uh, this is, uh-oh, uh, Nander, Nander Sirkel. Okay. Okay. All right, that's his, That's your name now, man. Uh, <laughs> Take it or leave it. Okay. Uh, here we go. <laughs> he says, I often wonder, when we're looking for life out there, aren't we a bit biased? by our own conditions for life itself, like water or breathable air. Even when considering silicon life forms, this still assumes creatures living on planets. Do you think it would be reasonable to consider, for example, other scales of life in size and space-time? Maybe some life forms would be the size of planets, even galaxy or quantum particles moving in time so fast that we, as slowpokes, can't even see them. Whoa. So, Kendra, what what part of your PhD thesis (laughs) dealt with quantum? (laughs) Quantum life forms. Uh, Not much of it, but I'll tell you, I I was a fan of Star Trek Next Generation, so I'm there with this person's questions, you know. (laughs) But Mm -hmm. quantum quantum life forms. So, not, not part of that. But in astrobiology, we really do think about um, what we call as life as we don't know it. Or um, what some people like to call weird life. Um, and we try to think when we're looking for life, we try to do, we're developing this way to try to think what we call agnostically about life, which means so life as we don't know it or weird life. So yeah, there, there's the problem. We only have one data point, Earth and life. And life on Earth has these. And even your extremophiles are part of that one yes, data everybody. point. Even though they're extreme and they can live on radio, um, you know, uh, live on, ra- on reactors or breathe iron or, you know, eat other crazy, you know, metals and things like that. Um, rocks. Eat rocks, <laughs> yeah. And, any, and even though they can do these crazy things, they all ha- still have the same amino acids as we do. They have the same stereochemistry as we do. And we all have the same fundamental, um, basically, code. We have DNA and RNA. We all have the same fundamentals. We all have that same base code of life that kind of builds the structure of life. Um, so, yeah, when we think about life on another planet, we, we have to think about life as we don't know it. What if they what if they use a completely different stereochemistry? What if they use a different set of amino acids to build their proteins? What if, you know, what if they have a different liquid? I was just getting asked this in a, in a previous conversation about, you know, 
What about Titan, where we have lakes of methane? It's a fluid, and life needs fluid for a chemistry. And it, Titan, Saturn's largest moon. Titan, yep. Yeah, where we've actually been there. And yeah, we're sending yeah. a beautiful little helicopter that's going to go and land and, and study on the surface uh, and those lakes and some of the organic sands there and try to try to understand um, the possibility for prebiotic chemistry on Titan. And that's the question is, is prebiotic chemistry possible in, you know, that kind of environment and what would it look like and what could life look like being, you know, arising in that kind of environment? So, yeah. One, one, one of my favorite New Yorker comics was uh, there's a crashed flying saucer in the desert and these two aliens are just crawling along the sands and one says to the other, Ammonia. Ammonia. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Total, I mean, that's totally it, right? I mean, it doesn't, I mean, on Earth, it just happened that water was the thing that was going to be, you know, the basis for, yeah. for life's chemistry. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that's how it's going to work on other planets. And that's something that we do have to think about. Um, you know, and then thinking about the larger scale of life, we do have scientists that are, you know, they look at things called techno signatures. So we try to understand the scale of, you know, uh, contacting other intelligent, you know, what we call intelligent, I mean, forms of life. Don't get me started on the intelligent comment, you know, with, I don't know. Uh, yeah, we, we're not even that yet. <laughs> and, uh, thank right, you. right. We're, we're still, the jury's still out <laughs> the on The jury's still one, out yeah. on us. Yeah, so, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, so can I ask both of you this? Mm -hmm. um, is there a finite chemistry in the universe? I know we have the period, pretty periodic table. Um, is there anything that could be outside of that that could actually contribute to life that is not on our periodic table? No. 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 That can't Next question. No. Everything, <laughs> everything that we know. Now, there may be other elements that we haven't discovered just because we haven't discovered them yet, but no. I mean, because all life begins with stars. You know, you know, all right. of our elements exactly. come from stars. So the star stuff, that's, that's the one common thing that makes it possible for us to really think about this question is that that's the ingredients in the yeah, kitchen the are all the, the same. Ingredients well, yeah. in the kitchen are the same across the universe, so that's it, it, helpful. Right? Yeah. It's just in the fact, recipe. Chuck, we, we do. Mm -hmm. We're doing better than that because we have created elements mm -hmm. that the universe has never seen exactly. before in our laboratories. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we've we we created two dozen more elements, mm -hmm. or or twenty, yeah, twenty or twenty, yeah, about two uh, twenty more elements than were currently there. So so let me let me ask you this, um, Kenda, mm -hmm. if chemistry is the same, and basically geology is the same, right? You put a geologist on a planet, oh, I know what rock this is, or we might have a different kind of minerality, yeah. but it, it won't be so foreign to them that they'll be befuddled. Right. Is there any reason, and, and the physics is obviously the same. So if I have the same physics, the same chemistry, the same geology, why can't we think that maybe biology will go will all focus towards the same forms as we have here if everything else does that in the other branches of well, science. I mean that's a that's a loaded question because it's not <laughs> it, it's um I mean we can expect some of the same uh principal things to happen. Like there's going to be a, some kind of cell wall structure. There's going to be an encoding system. There's going to be some way to transfer information. There's going to be some way to move energy and generate energy. There's going to be some way to move things in and out of an interior environment. Those kind of things, yeah, we can kind of figure out that those kind of the, are the common elements that are going to make life happen for biology. And those are the kind of things that we agree. There, we agree that we actually kind of agree there's a common set of, okay. of about, about eight things that all life you know, anything that we call life would probably have going on. Now, how they get it and how they put it together, that's where that chemistry is different. And that's where the the environmental context that made the geology is probably different, you know. That's going to be And that's okay. where, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. you know, and that's where maybe some of the physics, because the gravity is a little different. So some things are slightly different that help, you know, drive that environmental context. So does that make sense? I can say mm -hmm. that you're not going to expect life forms the size of galaxies. No. No. Well, okay. Can I tell you why? I'll tell you why. Why? Okay. Okay. So our galaxy is 100,000 light years across. Okay? 100,000. If that were a life form and one part of it had an itch, <laughs> how long would it take to scratch that itch? <laughs> if you can't, you can't move faster than the speed of light. So, so it has an itch, and then it brings one part of it to, over to the other part to scratch it. 100,000 years later, it scratches the itch. This is not very effective. Right. This, it, this is not a 
this is not a coherently functioning organism. Right, right. exactly. And if evolution requires a lot of experimenting, mm -hmm. then the life form has to be able to change, either on purpose or by accident, fast enough so that you can have enough of these experiments for it to take on interesting exactly. forms. Yeah. And and if you're really, really big, that doesn't yeah, happen. Yeah, because, I mean... And, so, and if it takes 100,000 years to scratch an itch, just imagine how uncomfortable it would be when its underwear gets stuck in its butt. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I'm more thinking about the size of the underwear at this point, you know, so just like... <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> just, <laughs> well, just, just, just to be clear, I wear boxer briefs, and boxer briefs don't get stuck in your butt. Oh, okay. oh look at so you, you know. sexy bragging. <laughs> <laughs> so let's see if we can squeeze one more in before the break. All righty, let's do it. Here we go. This is Akilisha uh, Kashyap. Man, <laughs> y'all just messing with me now, man. That ain't a real name. No. <laughs> okay, it's A K H I L E S H. Akilesh. Akilesh. Kashyap, C-K-A-S-H-Y-A-P, Kashyap, I hope. Okay. Okay. Hello, Dr. Tyson. Hello. I'll give you a B minus on that one. Don't I get an A minus? Okay. <laughs> a B minus. Oh, B okay. Damn, you just keep, I keep going down. Before you know it, it's just like you're expelled. <laughs> Hello, Dr. Tyson. Hello, Dr. Lynch and Lord Nice. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm, I'm a first-time Patreon member. Nice. And my question is, if we discover life on a restricted body like Europa or Enceladus, are we allowed to study them only through orbiting satellites? Or can we bring something back home and cut them open for science, of course? I mean, you went dark there. You went dark at the end, bro. Okay. You, you started off with uh, to real good. You, you started off with our continuing mission <laughs> to seek out new life, new civilizations, and then you ended up with let's just cut these suckers open. <laughs> well, well, be careful. There's some folks around where Kendra hangs out in Texas. Where can we bring it back and barbecue? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. We'll, we will we, we will get to that answer after after the break on Star Talk Cosmic Queries with astrobiologist Kendra Lynch. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. We're back for the third and final segment of Star Talk Cosmic Queries. Kenda Lynch is with us, who's an expert in microbes on Earth, as possible analogs to microbes in the universe. So, so uh, Kendra, uh, over the break, you uh, you remembered this this uh, radioactivity loving microbe. Yes. The name of it. What, what's yes, it it's called? It's called Dinococcus radiodurans, and they love. They literally can live on. Um, they found them on nuclear reactors, and they are very, um, you know. Dinococcus. 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 Yes. Radio Durant. This sounds like a, a rock group. <laughs> it does. But doesn't it? It really does. You know? <laughs> Chicago! Are you ready? <laughs> Dinococcus Radio Durant. Rock it out! <laughs> wow, that's cool. cool. Okay, so we left off with a question about... What was it, Chuck? So uh, he wants to know that if we discover life on a, rest a, a restricted body, mm -hmm. like Europa yes. or Enceladus. It's protected by NASA laws, it's basically. Right. Yes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, can we actually study it just through satellites orbiting, or can we bring back something and cut it open? 
(laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, um, you know, to cut it open, wow. Uh, So, I mean... Well, let me just back up for a second. So NASA has a department Mm -hmm. of planetary protection. And there, there's, there's, there's a, there's a code within them, which is it, not not a computer code, but a, a behavioral code. Whereas there are these selected objects in the solar system that may have life. We don't mess with them, or if we do, we go in a highly highly sterilized way. And if we bring anything back to Earth, we want to keep that quarantine to make sure it doesn't kill us. That's their job. Yeah, and that's that. That's the Planetary Protection Office. And the answer is, we're moving into this phase of science where we are trying to bring things back because we realize that we need to bring things back to be able to study them better, to understand if there's life in them or not. Right now, we're in the process with the Perseverance rover in the um, in Jezero Crater for the Mars 2020 mission. They're caching samples that we're going to send a, a lander to go and pick up those samples and hand them off for the rover, and we're going to bring those samples back to Earth from Mars. And we actually are, have missions that are being developed to go to try to land on both Europa and Enceladus. And Enceladus is my favorite. It's one of my favorite icy moons, by the way. I love Enceladus. Um, To try to understand, um, to look at the surface and maybe eventually try to get a sample, a sample that that came up from the subsurface ocean on both of those planets, uh, you know, that we can, we can study in situ and maybe someday we can figure out how to bring those back. But right now the goal is to just try to get to land on the surface and try to study samples in situ to see if we can find evidence for, for possible um, biosignatures of life. Uh, So I may be mistaken with this question, but I'm just going to ask it. Did, did we not learn from, What's Madam Saturn? What Carol, Carolyn Porco? That they're mm-hmm. going to try to fly something through one of the plumes yes. of Enceladus and maybe collect yes. what's being you know pushed out of the uh, the ice. Yeah, we have a we have a mission that's going to try to do that. I um, well, we also have a Europa Clipper that's going back to Europa. Um, that's gonna that's gonna that might even be able to do that with Europa Clipper. But we're also trying to fly through the plumes of Enceladus. We have the Enceladus Orbilander concept. That is looking at doing that, like orbiting, but also sending a lander down to the surface to pick up to to do some in situ science on the surface of Enceladus, hopefully near one of the tiger claws where all this stuff is spewing out. Okay, so, so that's that's the third time you said in situ. Sorry, <laughs> in five sentences. In, in situ means in situ. Excuse me, Madam Latin. There, okay. Sorry, Latin, that's all science, especially biology. We like we like throwing Latin around everywhere. So you throw into it Latin. Everything has just, a Latin just name. Give me some Latin. Everything has a Latin name in biology. Yeah, yeah, it's Latin. So, so let me emphasize something that I think you you said, but just wafted by it. Um, the the ice on Europa is very yes. thick, but it also cracks. Mm-hmm. And then water seeps up in the cracks and refreezes. Mm-hmm. So you're going to be, you're going to be um, astrophysically lazy, and instead of trying to dig through the ice, you're going to try to see if there's anything that came up through the ice and froze there that requires no digging at all. Well, I mean, oh. uh, yeah, I mean, there's, um, it, it might require some digging for the, you know, the subsurface, but there are, um, you know, we have some really brilliant scientists, not me, um, but some of my colleagues that are really brilliant, brilliant that study the kind of the ice. Other brilliant scientists. Uh, the yes. sci- uh, <laughs> other brilliant scientists, not me, because I don't study ice dynamics. I'm a, you know, I'm the biology one, but they study kind of that geology of those ice dynamics. And they found that, that there is, likely water that is seeping up from the ocean and and kind of connecting in, in the shallow subsurface and and doing things that they can actually see on the surface from remote sensing. And if that water below the surface had life, it would have gurgled up yeah. and frozen yeah. in place. Right. You'd have freeze-dried life Yeah, to exactly. Study. If we can access some of those yeah. areas where that That's life probably kind of gurgled up. And then on Celadus, of course, we've got you know, the tiger claws just spewing, you know, stuff out into space so we can try to capture some of that. And then we can also land on the For surface free. to try yeah. to see mm-hmm. what we can see that maybe kind of fell back down. If anything, you know. Okay, so how sterilized do your probes have to be to land on a protected oh, body? Oh, very sterile. <laughs> they, that, that's the challenge of doing this. Uh, is that yeah, you've got to make sure not only that the lander is very sterile, but that um, that you know all the instruments that you're working on are very sterile. Everything. Everything. And Everything. There are. They're even working on concepts. A coronavirus found on. Yeah. Yeah, just make the make the lander wear a mask. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's all. Everything. And just like make sure you wear your mask, and, and lander. Use hand sanitizer, right? Use yeah. hand sanitizer, <laughs> and so is your vax card before you touch that. <laughs> so yeah. All right, Chuck. Give me another one. Another question, Chuck. All right. All right. Before you know what, I got to ask this just before we go. I know I'm not a Patreon, but so when you talk about this water underneath this, basically 
you know, this planet. Uh, you got the ice, like a crust, and then the water underneath. But then you have other bodies in space that are just frozen, solid pieces of water. Why doesn't the planet just freeze all the way down? Why is there water underneath that ice? That can you just mean on the moon. Oh, yeah, the on the moon. It's yeah. not the planet. I'm mm -hmm. sorry. Oh, why, do, yeah, yeah. why do we have these ocean worlds on moons around Jupiter? And on Saturn? moons. Be yes. Well, first of all, be a couple of different things. First, first of all, um, there is um, we get heating from the gravity, the extreme gravity that causes what we call tidal heating, and and and, um, and Neil could probably explain that better. That that kind of pushes and flexes and causes heating. That kind of adds some heating to the planet and keeps it warm. Plus, these waters have lots and lots and lots and lots of salt. Lots of salt that are keeping that are depressing the freezing the, the 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 freezing point. So the salt the water is able to stay liquid because there's so much salt in it that that freezing point gets lowered because there's so much salt in it keeping it liquid. It's been rumored that zero on the Fahrenheit scale is the freezing temperature of a supersaturated solution of of, of brine of, of of salt water. It's been rumored, um, and so that's where you get a zero. That's the coldest liquid they could get that would freeze. And then regular water just goes, freezes at the warmth of 32 degrees on, a, on the Fahrenheit scale. But yeah, no, you said it perfectly, uh, Kenda. Just the tidal stress between Jupiter and the tugs of other surrounding moons are pumping energy in. And so now there's a heat source that just has nothing to do with the sun. Um, I learn in my biology books, you need sunlight for life. What you really need is just energy. energy. You take the physics angle yeah, on it, you yeah. just need energy. And you pump energy in from, mm -hmm. from tidal forces, you got and, it. And what they think is going on in Enceladus is they actually think that heat is also generating kind of, and maybe it's maybe some residual heat, but probably more of the tidal forces on Enceladus, generating heat that's causing hydrothermal hydrothermal vents, like what we see on Earth, you know, the deep sea hydrothermal vents with the black smokers and things that you see like on the National Geographic videos. They think that that's what they're seeing in the uh, in Enceladus, and that's kind of what's kind of helping to kind of possibly generate the tire claws pushing pushing that energy out, and that is creating a lot of cool chemistry that life could look that life could take advantage of. So, Kenda, we've had Natalie Starkey on mm -hmm. the show, who who wrote a book recently on uh, all the cool, literally and figuratively, <laughs> things in the universe. <laughs> yeah. uh, volcanoes, hot yes. and cold, and she describes Enceladus as a, as an ice volcano. Yeah, cryovolcanism. And and the the plumes are just where you just need extra pressure buildup. It didn't have to be hot compared to mm -hmm. us. It could just be pressure in its own environment, even if it's very yes. cold. So uh, yeah, very cool, Chuck. Keep it coming. Yeah, you can't keep get it coming. better than that. Uh, that's so cool. Cryovolcanism. Yes. If that doesn't mm. if that doesn't make you love science. You're dead inside. I know. You know? <laughs> I want that on my business card. Exactly. <laughs> I'm a cryovulcanist. You know, what are you? Okay. <laughs> All right, here we go. This is William D.A. Thank you, William. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he says, <clears throat> given that humans have always been fighting a war with tiny bacteria, viruses, and prions, etc., how likely do you think it is that there's a planet out there with a tiny microscopic organism and it wiped out the more complex life? What would such a planet look like long term? And uh, it's, uh, mm. that's what he said. So if we're in a war with, if, if we all got killed by a virus here, then what happens long term, even if it's just here on Earth? Yeah, ultimately, do all the little things kill all the big things, and you just have a planet full of viruses, <laughs> or single-celled organisms? Yeah. yeah, what? What is it? Where does the biology go? Right. Hey, what's up, term? Corona? Right. What's up, Streptococcus? <laughs> <laughs> hey, rhinovirus, how you doing today? Yeah, everybody's just chilling. All the viruses. They got cities and things. Yeah. Get you out know? of here, herpes. <laughs> 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 you weren't invited to the party. You know, you got invited, yeah. man. Um, you know, given that we've already had multiple mass extinction events on the planet already, um, where we've, we're like, uh, not necessarily microbes have taken out the, our bigger organism, but something else, usually an asteroid or something else took out um, our larger organisms, uh, life has just kind of rebounded. And yeah, for a while, the the little guys were, you know, the little guys were in charge, but life eventually kind of picked back up and, and, and organisms got more, you know, there's, there's an advantage on Earth 
for multicellularity. And so life eventually kind of worked its way back to um, multicellularity at some point, you know, and those small guys got bigger and bigger and more complex and more complex each time. But we've, you know, so um, oh, I would say is if we had a micro-generated mass extinction event, my guess is, yeah, for a while, the little guys would be in charge. But then eventually, um, you know, depending on, the, you know, the environment of Earth, if it's advantageous to take advantage of resources and to keep yourself alive, to become multicellular, life would probably go back to being multicellular or having a multicellular component on the planet. That's an excellent argument, because if we've done it multiple times in the past, why not again? I mean, after the KT... Yeah extinction nothing bigger than you like, know a suitcase yeah, or like something you know a, a, and rats and like small rats. yeah a duffel bag which was biggest size life form and now we have you know the blue whale swim in the ocean the largest animal there ever was so a very good argument there yeah i'm with you on that that's very okay. cool very cool. Chuck, we got time for like one more i think what do you got all right let's uh let's go to kevin the sommelier Oh, Ooh, Kevin right. says. I like Kevin. Yes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin, we're going to party yeah, with you, Kevin. Right. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Kevin says, you know, when I'm sitting around drinking a Chateau Neuf de Pop, I often... But did, no, did I know he no. does it. No. <laughs> no, no, no. I just, I just threw that in there. <laughs> okay. I thought that'd be cool. All right. That was cool. I, I wish he did start like that. Uh, mm -hmm. Kevin says, astrobiology used to be termed exobiology. Was this just a rebranding to make people more interested in it, like when Coke introduced new Coke, but had, <laughs> but had to go back to classic Coke? Well, keep drinking up, Kevin the Samonier. <laughs> That's a very good question that I, I'm, I'm thinking about here, because, you know, the reality is, is that when I fell in love with this, it was exobiology. When I was, and I'm not going to date myself, but when I got my first lecture, it was from this gentleman named Donald DiVincenzi, who was a part of what was called the exobiology office at NASA. And FYI, NASA always had an exobiology office. NASA started with an exobiology office. So this has been a question that NASA has wanted answered since the beginning of NASA. So this has been kind of part of our charter from the beginning. And so... I think the big transition came obviously after the, the Viking results, but I think the big transition came after um, the Allen Hills Rock and the discovery of the organics in the Allen Hills Rock and, you know, the, 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 um, the, um, the, the hypothesis that these were organics were made by Martian microbes and these kind of microbes may be special, you know, the whole argument about the biogenicity of the organic um, feet structures in the Allen right. Hills the Allen rock. Hills rock is about the size of a Idaho potato. Been sitting on the shelf for mm -hmm. years. It was we knew it was a meteorite, but no one really knew much about it until, like you said, the Viking mission. We have accurate measurements of the atmosphere of Mars from that mission, and po air pockets trapped in that rock matched that air exactly. Yes. And oh my gosh, yeah, a rock from the, Mars the sitting age on the of shelf. SNC rocks um, meteorites was born. I never mind looking ignorant because it's my specialty. <laughs> Please tell me what the Allen Hills rock is. The Allen Hills is a Mars meteorite. We know, as as Neil said, that it came from Mars because we look at these little, little bubbles in it that keep gases in it. And we're able to extract the gas and look at the gas composition. And it tells us that it has the exact same composition of, of the gases on Mars from our Viking results. And so we know that this meteorite was a piece of Mars that got blasted off and traveled to Earth and, and kind of landed on Earth. And so Allen Hills is one of what we call an SNC or a Mars meteorite that came from Mars. And cool. Uh, just for just for, for for background, there's a set of hills in Antarctica mm -hmm. called the Allen Hills, where the glacier that is like permanently on Antarctica for now, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, as it migrates, it comes up against the hills. And if any rock fell from space and landed on this glacier, it gets dragged to these hills and deposited there. So it's 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 a really convenient way to scoop up uh, 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 meteorites without having to comb thousands of square miles of area. You let the glacier do it for you. So it's in Allen Hills, um, and it was found in 1984. Wow. And, and they cool. still do, and they do, mm -hmm. still do annual trips, um, or they had been, I don't know if they stopped because of COVID for a while, to Antarctica to look, to go out and look on the glaciers for meteorites. Because anywhere else, you actually have to watch it fall to go, kind of go look for it, or you have to, you know, and we've had, we have people send us rocks, especially at the LPI all the time. I think it's a meteorite, and it's not. Oh. <laughs> yeah, it's here we call them meteor yeah, wrongs. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> the meteor wrongs, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, the point is, 
um, it, uh, is it most? Certainly, it, possibly as much as half of all meteorites in our collections come from these ice sheets. Mm -hmm. And people wonder, well, do the, 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 the meteors aim for the ice sheets? No, that's the only place you would find them if they mm -hmm. fell. Otherwise, you have to sift through countless other rocks in the right. forest and, to know which one came from space and, and which didn't. And most didn't. of the ones that are so. verified that weren't fallen on the glacier is because somebody watched it fall and tracked it. And that's yeah, exactly. exactly. So, but the point the point is, is that after you know we got Allen Hills, and this was back in uh, I think it was like 92, 93, Is that right? Um, when they this this study came out, and they thought that this happened, and everybody you know kind of disagreed, and we had you know arguments back and forth about are they life, are they not life, and then we realized, do we really understand what life is? And this is about the time that we started learning about, you know, we started learning more about extremophiles and the RNA world, the the vastness of the RNA world. And we started learning more about biotechnology and our capabilities for, um, you know, for, you know, higher sample um, resolution and sample um, sa and sample detectability, um, uh, you know, in our instruments got higher. So all of this kind of stuff made us start to question. Um, I mean, the instruments got more yeah, sensitive. Yes, thank you, more sensitive. You <laughs> can't find my words today. <laughs> That's fine. Okay. <laughs> um, but um, all of these things kind of together, kind of, you know, with that Allen Hills discovery, and at that time they went back and looked at the Viking results and, and realized that Viking would not have necessarily caught everything because of the, the, the sensitivity wasn't high enough, right? So there's all of these things mm -hmm. going on. Um, you know, we started asking the question, like, what do we really know about life? Do we really understand life on Earth? Do we really understand the extent of life or what is alive on Earth? And so that's where astrobiology, because it was looking, exobiology was like looking for life elsewhere, but astrobiology includes understanding how life on Earth also came to be. How did we become to be a living planet? So that's where the new term astrobiology came from, because it became about looking for life on Earth, looking for life in the universe but also trying to understand how do we become the data point that we have now. So I take the meta view, which is everything the astrophysicist does in space mm -hmm. has a counterpart here on Earth. And so you want to glue together astro in front of each of those words. So we have astrochemistry, <laughs> astrobiology, astroparticle physics. And so astro, astro we, we're the push cart right, for it all. there you I go. <laughs> I like yeah. that one too. <laughs> Fun, funny how the astrophysicists become the quarterback of the team. <laughs> oh, I'm I just get saying. it. Yeah, there you that's go. Just, just, <laughs> we got appointed by the universe itself uh, well, <laughs> to be <now>. that role. <laughs> Come on now. <laughs> so, Kenda, I remember when uh, that Alan Hills rock made news. And it was a research paper by some folks at Johnson Space Center making the claim that maybe this has evidence for life, which meant life was on Mars. I remember it like it was yesterday. And there was some chemistry within the rock. And then there was a, there was a photo of the, a worm-looking thing yeah. on the surface. And we didn't know what it was. It was really tiny. But it was just kind of intriguing. It made a good headline photo. But the, the better evidence was from the other chemistry going yeah. on in the rock. I was on a talk show to comment on this rock. And they had me, a philosopher, and a biologist. And the philosopher said, how do we know whether the rock itself is not alive? Okay, we got that out of the way. I <laughs> got, got to make that Stop comment. smoking and weed, then, dude. <laughs> <laughs> we had to get past that. And then... So then they put up the photo of this worm thing, and the biologist says, that can't possibly be life. <laughs> and I'm thinking, wow, the biologist must know a lot to know that that can't be. I said, so I said, well, how come? And he says, oh, because that's one-tenth the size of the smallest microbes on Earth. And I then said, last I checked, this is from Mars. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, and I realized how narrow the thinking was of biologists. Because like you began this program, Kenda, if, you, if all you have is a data sample of one, you have no capacity to think differently. Everything has to be shoehorned into your own understanding of the world. And I was perfectly happy to have it be a life form that we don't know anything mm -hmm. about. Deal yeah. with it. And that biologist today is working at McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> no, stop, I, <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember who that was. All right. But I don't know. Probably not. <laughs> we we got to call it quits there. Uh, Ken, it has been a delight to have you on the show. I remember you when you were in graduate school. You're all grown up now. It's so fish. You're all grown up. <laughs> it's such an honor to be here. I'm so glad that you remember me. And Actually, we finally yeah. found you in the ether. 
and uh, we can find you on Netflix, uh, episode yep. two of Alien World. And we're loving it. And uh, Chuck, always good to have you there, my co-host. Always dude. a pleasure. All right. Neil deGrasse Tyson here, your personal astrophysicist. Keep looking up. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.